All right, we're back with another episode of Deconstructing Health and Fitness with Liz and Chris. And today we have another special guest. She's Dina and she's the nutrition mechanic. Uh, We met at a gym. Actually, we were working out together and we kind of figured out that there was some common interest here. And I thought she'd be a fantastic person to come on and talk to us a little bit about nutrition in fitness and women's nutrition, as well as just talking a little bit about registered dietitians and and why you should seek one out. So I'm going to turn the mic over to her and have her give a little bit more background on herself. So take it away, Dina. Thank you, Chris. Thank you, Liz, having me on with you. I'm honored. So, so happy to be with you and chat. Anything that comes up, nutrition and this whole realm is so important to be talking about. Uh, so yeah, I'm Dina Griffin here in Boulder, Colorado, but I, I mostly work with endurance athletes. Um, my focus in the last few years has been more in the realm of working with women and specifically in, I'll, I'll call it the master's population, but really, you know, anyone, anyone, but specifically more in the 40 and older subset, uh, I mean, the range of, of women and medical conditions varies from everything from prediabetes to type 2 diabetes, metabolic issues, heart, cardiovascular health. But um, my, my main focus is trying to optimize nutrition in line with the individual's goals, keeping in mind the longevity aspect. Um, so it's, it's an acute and more long-term approach that I have. So I'm not really into any of the, you know, fad diets. Uh, I'm always looking for the sustainable patterns that work for the individual and really looking at that personalized level of nutrition, which I know you both appreciate well how nuanced some of these things can be. Mm -hmm. So yeah, in essence, you know, it's sports nutrition, but it's working with a variety of individuals and and looking to meet you where you are instead of trying to pigeonhole into a box, you know, to follow this plan or that plan. It's it's really looking at the person and their needs and their goals. I think this is why you're such an important guest to have on, right? Because I think maybe a good place to start with this is what what is the difference between a registered dietitian and a nutrition coach? Mm. I mean, because I know what it is and you know what it is, but I think it's very confusing for people when they're coming into health or fitness or sport for the first time. They they don't necessarily know what the difference between all of these things are. Yeah. I mean, and, and it's great to repeat the messaging. And I think it's, you know, it's something that I've come to appreciate even more that, um, I, we have to be careful to judge based on, you know, the two word credential or the two word description, right? Because there are excellent professionals, whether it's a nutrition coach or a registered dietitian, but it's really looking at what are we, what are we trying to improve or remedy or work with? So the registered dietitian can come into the picture more when specifically there is um, a medical condition and we need some medical nutrition therapy. Um, the background of as far as education and credentialing can be or is, I should say, more um, extensive with that path, that professional path. So, I mean, I, I kind of joke, Chris, like, Oh, if you know an orange has vitamin C, 
you're a nutritionist, you know, like you're, you're in, um, and I'm, I'm not trying to be snarky, but it sounds that way, but it's like really anyone can call themselves a nutrition coach. However, as, as you appreciate too, there are a number of different programs out there like the Precision Nutrition Company that have excellent programs. It's just that the difference then with the RD path is, you know, a thousand hour internship and um, now we're moving to a master's degree being required and licensure and all of these other things to mm-hmm. go through. So, but I think in essence, you know, sometimes it's, mm-hmm. it's looking at if it's a medical condition or something more advanced where we've, we need some extensive biochemistry background or some other education mm-hmm. in that realm to, to treat the person. Um, that's where the RD comes in even more. I think that's a really important word that you used, treat, because I think this is where it, it really does need to, there needs to be a fork. And I, as a nutrition coach, as somebody who takes my education in this this area very seriously, right, like I'm extremely careful and I tell people right up front, you know, like I'm not the food priest, right? You don't have to come to me and confess your food sins. Two, I'm not going to give you a meal plan. Like that is not my role and that's not what I'm here for. I'm here to help you change behaviors. I'm here to help you look at patterns and I'm here to help you make choices that align with what you want to be doing and your goals. I'm not here to help you treat diabetes, right? That's where a registered dietitian would come in. So if you have a health condition and you also have a nutritionist, and I'll put that in air quotes because like you said, (laughs) I like that if you know this vitamin C in an orange, you can call yourself a nutritionist, Um, you know, then that's not, that's outside of the scope of that person's job. And and if you have a nutrition coach, knowing that they have a referral network of people for extra situations, I think is really important to understand, you know, because it's, it's tempting. I think it's tempting once you have a client who you trust and you like, and you want to help, it's easy to overstep and say, Oh, well, I can help with all of these things. But there are, there are people who are more specialized towards this, right? Like I look at the nutrition yeah. coach as a gatekeeper to other health professionals who can do the more deep work that we uncover in the initial part of what I'm doing with a client, right? That's fantastic. I wish we had more of you, Chris, <laughs> out in the world, but we'll take you. We're working yeah, on it. <laughs> it's fantastic. We're working on it, right? Yeah. Unfortunately, I mean, and there are RDs who I mean, we also have to mind our scope of practice, right? Mm-hmm. So it goes both ways uh, in that whole realm. But definitely I have seen cases where maybe the nutrition coach, uh, you know, got into an aspect that that maybe wasn't appropriate. And so I think this is all part of education, just like when we go to a physical therapist or other massage therapist, you name the professional, just what is their expertise and ability and really doing our homework. Yeah. And who are they as a person, right? Because I think this is, this is the tricky, tricky part. (laughs) Because within every field, there are excellent professionals and there are less excellent professionals, right? So learning to vet them as well, learning to, to know what to look for is really why we're here. So it's the whole point of this podcast, right, is to sort of help people have a better barometer of like, what do I really need? And, and how is this serving me? Is it is it serving me? Um, is this really for profit and not mine, right, for their profit? Um, you know, how does that play out in the long run? And I think something you said as well when we were talking before about looking at sustainability, right? Like, I think 
for a long time, <laughs> the, the idea was like, I need to lose weight fast and de- devil the, the consequences. So what's that expression? What's it, um, you know, oh, come on, Liz, you know, this one. <laughs> Damn the what you're saying. Damn the consequences. The consequences be damned. Well, that's oh. it. Thank you. I like, no. <laughs> so like as long as I get down to the certain weight, I'm sure I can maintain it. Even though I did extreme lifestyle changes, I'm sure those are just going to stick around. Yeah. And then that, that cycle kind of continues. Right. And then I actually, I have a personal story about this and how I ended up on this path in the first place was I went to, I was living in France and I went to a dietitian. I was deep, dark into the world of bodybuilding and keto diets and carbs being evil and all of this stuff. And I, I went because I was still not convinced I was getting lean enough, which in hindsight was absurd. Um, I went to a registered dietitian looking for help. And when she told me to eat bread, I discredited her. I thought, well, she can't possibly know what she's talking about because no, no nutrition person in their right mind would tell me to eat bread. And I think it speaks to the misinformation and the power of the marketing and the misinformation around the diet industry, that even somebody who was incredibly committed to learning and applying the things that I thought were healthy could be misled to this degree. It's super important that you're bringing that up. I mean, I, I have stories like that from my own journey too, and others. It's uh, I mean, it's, it's can be confusing, like who to go to. And then when you take into consideration our own histories, what we were taught as we were raised, you know, and the environments in which we were in and our cultural influences, society, all of those things, it's, it can be quite overwhelming in so many ways, right, to, to figure mm-hmm. out. And then, yeah, with our belief system um, and being then given different messages from someone who maybe has the credentials, like, well, is this is this real? Or, yeah, I'm going to put that person aside because it doesn't align with my beliefs. Then we have a whole other, you know, path that we're taking. Yeah, I think it's an interesting conversation around belief systems in nutrition as well, like because it becomes almost a religion, right? <laughs> Whatever diet you're doing can become like a, a somewhat religious and personal thing. Oh, yeah. Yeah. But everyone so, seems to be okay with um, commenting on it, like on what you're eating, what, you know, it's really hard to, speaking from also from that, um, that, that female standpoint of, I feel like I cannot hang around any woman without them critiquing what they're eating and commenting about their own diet, usually in a very toxic way um, or anything that they want to eat. So it's kind of like, even though you're a specialist, Dina, and um, Chris is also a specialist, it's hard because you get, you get, inundated with all this information from people who are not. Um, and it's so, it's so overwhelming. So I'm super happy to have you and Chris here and talking about this because we need a way to, to kind of um, move aside all the misinformation, all the information that's not helpful. I mean, it speaks to the power of anecdotal evidence, right? Like my friend did the keto diet and lost 30 pounds and looked everyone I know, right? Like everyone I know who did the keto diet lost 30 pounds and then they gained 60 back or something. (laughs) Oh, we got an eye roll out of Dina. She's got something to say about that. 
<laughs> no, I'm just relating to the, yeah, even what I hear, people who who don't know what I do, and Liz, what you're saying too, just hanging out with different people, like that comes up so often in social. Uh-oh, you froze. <laughs> She'll be back. We'll, we'll edit this out. Yeah, that's fine. It wasn't me. I thought it was me. I was like, oh, no, here it goes. <laughs> well, it's not me either because mine's still going. It must be her video. Yeah. Okay, if she drops, we can always pick it back up. Yeah. <gasps> there you are. Oh, almost. Oh, we can't hear you. Conversation. Oh, wait, there we go. There we go. Sorry, your video froze for a minute. My apologies. That's okay. So you were just saying. Yes. Yeah, you were just saying. Yeah, uh, I just saying. It's a prevalent. How, li- yeah, Liz, what you're saying just when I'm around people who don't even know what I do for work and how often the dieting conversation comes up or the weight loss story or that this worked for so-and-so and should I try this kind of conversation. I've tried to do my part here over the years in, you know, once it's known like, Oh, I work in nutrition. Either I don't bring it up and, you know, like, let's, let's look at the horse over in the field and change <laughs> the subject or something, but just trying to be, uh, for those who do want to talk about nutrition and know, you know, the work that I do, um, is trying to really be positive with the language and, you know, take down the dieting talk. I'm sure this is from the, from the episodes I've listened of you too. This is really important. Um, just the tone of the conversation, support vibe between one another and trying to remove some of this negative, you know, self-talk from the whole story. Yeah. It's, it's, I know it's sort of like, it's bordering on like new age mindset work, but at the same time, it's so important because we, we are our most powerful influence, right? And, you know, if you've listened to a few of the episodes, I'm sure you've come up with one of them where we, we kind of got some of Liz's internal voices out and realized that like a lot of times our our internal voices are really mean to us. And you would never talk to anybody you cared about the way that you talk to yourself. And so it's, it's, I think such a critical part of working through some of the diet mentality is recognizing where, where that stuff came from in the first place in your head, right? Like, is it a family member? Is it friends? Is it social circles you're in? Is it TV? Is it, you know, where are you getting this messaging that you're not enough? Where are you getting this messaging that you have to be different? You have to change all the time. And is it valid, right? Like, is that really true? And I think it's a really, really nice thing to see in the health and wellness industry, particularly that we're taking a step away from this punitive, I must change and be better. And and everything about me is inadequate to a more like additive process and holistic process of like, hey, you know, Maybe I've been going through something challenging and I should give myself some compassion for that. And maybe there's a medical diagnosis that I need to address that if I do, I'll feel better and I don't have to feel guilty about it. You know, I think some of these lifestyle related diseases bring up a lot of challenges for people. For sure. Mm -hmm. That investigation that you're mentioning there, Chris, that that's like deep, deep, deep work that I feel like a lot of people don't want to do or know that they need to do. Like, yeah, what is it that you think you will gain by losing the 30 pounds, you know, and really 
diving into that story that we all have, whatever the context is, the expectations. But I think what uh, a really great point you're bringing up is that, like, um, you know, where do these beliefs originate? And I find oftentimes it's, you know, years ago, right, in our youth and things like that that um, have come up and then finally surface that we get to in our in our older years. Like it's never too late to get into that stuff, but uncovering that element or those layers and, un, you know, peeling back, it's a lot of hard work, I think, for people um, no matter where we've mm-hmm. come, where we've come from. Yeah, not just ogres are like onions, right? Like <laughs> people yeah. are like onions too. And and it really does come down to how many layers are you willing willing to peel away <laughs> and yeah. then build back up, right? So I think it would be a good time to start talking a little bit about your work with endurance athletes and some of the the challenges that you see women facing in their master's years. Um, just for anybody who doesn't know what the term master's means, a master's athlete is just an athlete who is 40 or so, maybe sometimes 35 or so or older, and still trying to be competitive at some kind of sport or event. And I think there are a lot of us, right? There are a lot of master's athletes out there. And there isn't as much, especially for women, there isn't enough, I think, good advice around how to successfully do this and respect your hormones and the changes that you may be going through at the time or some of these health diagnoses that you've had um, and and still compete. So I'd love Mm -hmm. to hear some of your input on that. I think, you know, one thing that's just coming out more and more is the appreciation for learning about your body from this aging perspective. I mean, we have aging that's happening nonstop, but then also our hormonal inputs or outputs, you know, and this change from once we are around 40, or maybe it's a little older for some of us, but just the impact of the life cycle stage, that being like our perimenopause years. I mean, I, I think a lot of us in at least my generation, like we weren't taught that stuff we don't talk about, you know, and it was always like menopause is for old people that go away and they just stop living and functioning and we ignore them. And I think now with so many of us, you know, try and remain active for health purposes or enjoyment purposes is how to still support that level of activity while we learn the impact and it can go in all directions, but like Mm -hmm. how does going through the perimenopause transition, what do I need to do differently with nutrition or my, my sleep or my, my programming exercise wise to support what I'm going through so that the, you know, all of these negatives that we've heard and that's been out in our society, you know, that we turn into old, just worthless people, that, that, that conversation is shifting. Um, So nutritionally, it's a lot, First of all, just learning like, well, because each of us is different, but each woman and what's going on from that hormonal profile can be dramatically different and then manifest in different ways, which can be quite dramatic for some people as far as, you know, uncomfortable symptoms and things. So I think this first point is more like uh, learning the impact and, and where you are in this whole life cycle stage, which I know is broad here what I'm saying, but uh, hopefully that makes sense. 
Yeah, I think maybe let's let's try to get a little deeper on what are some of the perimenopause symptoms that people should be looking out for? Because I think this, like you said, this is just not something that was talked about. And even me, I'm 43 and I'm realizing that like, this is coming for me pretty soon. And my body definitely did a big shift around 40 that I, I didn't anticipate. Like, cause I, I felt like I was going pretty even keel. I mean, I had some orthopedic issues um, that have been more or less solved, but boy, does my body not recover the same and it doesn't behave the same. And, and I can't say personally that I am super duper aware of what I should be looking for, for perimenopause symptoms. It's all over. I think, I think the last, when I looked at this, Chris, the, I mean, the list of potential symptoms, signs was something like 48 reported, you know, everything from like more frequent migraines to, you know, your sleep starts becoming more disruptive, disrupt, disrupted, or uh, all the way to, um, you know, the common, commonly heard hot flushes, night sweats, uh, you know, the brain fog, some of those are things that have been out there. It's just so all over the place. Um, but it's like the your, COVID symptoms now, right? Like, <laughs> yeah, exactly, right? But yeah, from from what you're saying, we start to notice like, oh, yeah, I'm not able to put out maybe the same level performance-wise as what I could when I was 30, you know, or – the other things that start to shift as our estrogen and progesterone levels fluctuate is a change or loss, you know, starting to lose or more easily uh, lose lean muscle. And so that can be then, you know, like, oh, I'm not, I'm like, this seems heavier than a couple years ago, the same, whatever, you know, barbell weight that we're trying to deadlift or whatever. But, um, so yeah, the symptoms can be quite numerous. And then there are some women who don't have anything happening until, you know, like 50, 54 years young, then all of a sudden, you know, periods start to become more irregular, things like that. So what are some of the things just, you know, across the board that you would say are good preventive measures? for kind of dealing with some of these symptoms, you know, like, cause, it, and I think we have to put out there that some amount of muscle loss is inevitable over the very long term, right? Mm -hmm. I think this is something that, you know, even given the absolute best training program and best nutrition and best sleep and stress-free existence, like our bodies are aging and things are not going to stay exactly the same. So it's not about staying exactly the same, but it's about sort of attempting to optimize what you can be doing. Yeah, definitely. Good point. Um, so yeah, I would say one of the things is really looking at protein intake and fill me in, Chris, how much you've talked about this before. And Liz to, uh, you know, as we age, try and work with the aging component, which we know with every decade of life, we, you know, we lose five, 10%. Um, depending, you know, of our VO2 max, that there's significant changes with each decade. Nonetheless, we've got our exercise side and the nutrition side. So one of the big things that's been coming out in the research, you know, over the last decade or, or even more is just the importance of um, including protein throughout all of our meals, fairly evenly distributed. But then especially for women is making sure that we're eating 
not only enough calories, I mean, regardless of the protein piece, we need to be eating enough uh, and not getting into a low energy availability state, but also that protein piece to help combat some of the effects of our uh, hormonal flux that occurs for some women up to 15 years in perimenopause state. So protein is one that we tend to, you know, not want to think about. A lot of women just don't care for eating much protein, whether it's, you know, animal or plant protein. Um, But it's really important for a number of aspects, including bone health, um, brain, cognition, um, you know, even some things along the lines of, um, you know, thinking of our athletic scope here is working with uh, lean muscle and try to maintain some of that function functional strength. So we have to have, you know, both. We've got to have some some smarter programming as we age, but also that protein, it it comes up over and over. And I think it can be a challenge for for a lot of us when we're starting to look at nutrition more closely. I think it's really interesting that you bring up that women struggle a lot with consuming enough protein because I've always, my, uh, I was brought up most, mostly vegetarian. Sometimes we had chicken and then turkey on Thanksgiving, but pretty much like every meal was just plant-based protein or really my, my mom to this day, I'm like, mom, like if I go over to their house, I'm like, do you have anything that's like protein? She's like, there's cheese. It's cheese on it. <laughs> I'm like, mom, <laughs> this is why when I was, when I was a kid and like a teenager, we would just have like a fat and a carb and tons of vegetables, like vegetables from the gardens. But I would just be like, well, I am still hungry. Like two servings later, I'm like, I'm still hungry and I'm not at all satiated. Um, and until really actually like the last, since working with Chris, I realize now, like the only way I feel satiated at all is if if I eat meat protein. I can eat all the plant based protein I want, and I'm my brain is still like, well, you know, I could eat more, mm-hmm. um, but I but I struggle, and um, I'm sure hormonally it's like some sort of component to that because during like every, once every month I get a weird chicken inversion where chicken makes me want to vomit. Um, meat sometimes just really grosses me out. And yet I'm like, I need, I need to eat this because it's the only way I'm going to feel not hungry anymore. Yeah. Another important element or bonus of, of protein, right, is for its satiety effect. That's good that you notice that with and without, and then maybe the different types or how perhaps the influence of hormones affects your tolerance of certain foods. Mm. I think this is one of the tricky parts with um, working on nutrition with women is that we have this whole extra like kind of curveball going on in the background of like, well, this week chicken sounds fantastic and I could eat an entire one. And next week I don't want to look at a chicken and it's actually a chemical thing going on, right? Where your body's actually asking you for something specific. And I think this is one of the things we worked on a lot as well as a sort of identifying like, what is my body actually asking me for and getting better in Mm -hmm. tune with those intrinsic cues because, and we've talked about this before too, but we, we exist in specifically in America in a culture that asks us routinely to not pay attention to our intrinsic body cues, right? Like, mm-hmm. and, and I experienced this when I moved abroad for the first time, because I can remember in college, 
you know, I would wake up and I would have something for breakfast. And then a friend would call me around 10 and be like, Hey, let's go get some breakfast. And I was like, yeah, double breakfast. Let's do that. Right. And then my eating pattern was all over the map. And when I first moved abroad to Europe, like there are times where you eat and there are times where you are not eating culturally. And if you are eating outside of given times to eat in France, they will sarcastically bon appetit you until you feel so shamed that you put whatever you're eating down because you don't eat outside of mealtimes. And this was such a big culture shock to me that there were times for meals and they only happened a couple times a day. It wasn't a meal free for all. Mm. And so there's, there's this huge layer of, of cultural programming on top of all of this other hormonal programming that kind of we've learned to ignore, right? We've learned to ignore those internal body cues. Um, and equally in France as well, like if you're hungry at three o'clock and it's not eating time, you don't eat. So that's like the opposite end of the spectrum. But it's this idea that like your body's really, really good at knowing what it needs if you know how to listen to it. And it doesn't mean it's always right. I mean, ice cream's still going to sound good. Oh, <laughs> um, yeah. So like your brain like going, yeah, get that, that we need that, yeah. right? <laughs> always. We always need that. Mm-hmm. Um, but like recognizing the difference between an opportunity that your body sees and genuine physical hunger is a really important skill that we work on a lot, right? Is mm-hmm. like, hey, are you actually hungry, right? And this is how Liz kind of came to this idea of like, oh, wait a second, when I eat protein, I'm not constantly looking around for food, like meat wondering based when the protein. Next, yeah, meat-based yeah. protein. Right. And it took some experimenting, right? It wasn't like you went straight for that and we didn't immediately decide that you were going to eat more meat, right? We did lots no. of things. And, and one of the first things you said was, you're going to pry the cheese out of my cold, dead hands. So, <laughs> well, you know. Sister. That was actually my sister. Was it, Trisha? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's probably true. But um, you were like, amen. <laughs> if left to my own devices... I would probably not eat meat more than like twice a month. I would just go throughout my day eating like beans and vegetables and cheese. <laughs> and that's really what I want. But then I, I, I never feel even like 80% full. I'm just like, mm. it's very, it's very interesting to learn this about yourself, especially when you've been indoctrinated Um <laughs> with like vegetarian ideals most of your life and my sister's still a vegetarian and um you know I don't want to take anything away from that if it's working for people but for me I notice if I don't eat if I don't eat uh animal like meat specifically I just do not feel okay um especially red meat every like you know like like every other week or twice a week or I mean or once a week or something like that there's these interesting components that I've just learned about and then trying to reconcile what I know my body needs and wants and, you know, what um, I thought was ideal. Like, like I said, um, growing up with vegetarian ideals. Yeah. And it can be a real deprogramming experience. Like, you know, what I experienced when I moved abroad and it was like, wait a second, like, I thought this was just how things were done everywhere and it's not. Or, you know, I thought being vegetarian was the best thing for me, but I'm finding out that that's not what my body's agreeing with. Some people really do thrive on vegetarian diets. Yeah. Um, I don't happen to be one of them either. I've tried every different flavor of that possible. Um, And for me, I'm I'm in the same boat as you with the red meat, right? We've got frozen Mm -hmm. Dina again. There she's back. (laughs) Just in time for me to ask, um, 
I think it's always, it's important that we understand that protein is, is sort of the foundation of, of, I mean, and I, I often use the car analogy, like protein is the building blocks of the car, right? It's the steering wheel and the wheels and the metal and the everything, like you need it to make the car, but you can't just put that in, right? You have to then have the workers, which are the vegetables and the vitamins and the nutrients that come with the vegetables. And then you need the energy to get the job done. Right? You got to feed the workers. So that now we have carbs and, you know, it's a really basic analogy, but how much protein should the average woman be eating? And I know it's very individual and it's based on activity level and body weight and other factors, but just as a, as a rule, how can I start to ascertain if I am indeed getting adequate protein or not? Yes. Do you, so yeah. Do you use Chris visuals sometimes like the hand or palm? Yeah. Yeah. I think that can be an easy way if we're like not trying to encourage counting and weighing and measuring everything. Um, So like when I first started paying attention to nutrition way before I was in, in the field of nutrition, I remember just like, Oh, aim for the palm amount. Right. And this, these these guidelines have changed a bit, especially for getting into like the perimenopause years. So we could just call that master's years because I'm not trying to put all women into this this bucket based on reproductive cycle or any of that. But <laughs> I find that if and and Liz, to your point too, vegetarian proteins can fit in this whole picture. Uh, so if it is beans or tofu or, you know, other kinds of whole grains, things like this, trying to get a mix of fish, uh, animal or other, you know, animal derived sources. And then there are plant proteins. But I like to think about, you know, the whole open hand as a starting point and, and that being on each plate or bowl of our main meals throughout the day. But I'm also a fan of putting protein in with, you know, if we are doing a snack, uh, you know, putting some protein in and, you know, that ends up being in the range of, you know, 25 to 40 grams of protein per meal Mm -hmm. at the end of the day. You know, I'm, I'm hoping that it's, it's far above the RDA of, you know, protein, uh, meeting our protein needs. So it's, it's probably at least double what the RDA says that we need. Um, I think it's really important. Yeah. It's really important to talk about what the RDA RDA is. And I don't think this is something we've ever talked about on the podcast before, but people look at the RDA as, as if it's a gold standard, but it was developed to be the line at which you are not deficient yeah. It's not an optimal intake line. It's a below this, you're in danger line, right? So if you're shooting only for the RDA, you're probably not getting adequate anything, right? It's the same thing with the five servings of vegetables a day. I know I've talked about it about vegetables, but it's like, that's a minimum to not generate problems right. long-term, right? That's not an <laughs> optimal amount of vegetables. To be Such an important distinction. <laughs> Such yeah. an important distinction. Wow. I think it's yeah. something to think about. And I'm just adding on to what you said, Chris, is like, do we want to feel adequate and like, I'm okay, I'm getting, I'm getting through this day. Or do we want to be more on the optimal side where it's like, mm-hmm. oh yeah, bring on this day. I mean, I, uh, I think nutrition could play a huge role in, in our everyday mojo, right? So it, yeah. it is trying to work towards that more optimal side, not trying to be in any sort of perfection bucket at all, but it's just trying to be better than adequate so that we can do all the things that we want to do every day. 
Yeah. And I mean, if you have an off day once in a while too, I think it's important. It doesn't have to be like every single day you're absolutely exceeding expectations on everything. Like everybody's going to have a a crappy day and eat some macaroni and cheese that doesn't have adequate protein in it. It happens. Right. And I think this is the balance to strike because for a long time, the narrative has been very polarized in nutrition. Either you're like compliant and a hundred percent amazing and you're nailing your diet and you win or you fail. And I think there needs to be such a bigger spectrum here because this is what, when we talk about balanced eating, I think it's important to really be, clearer about defining that for people because dieting is not balanced eating, right? Let's just put that out there. (laughs) It's not balanced eating. It's one extreme. You're eliminating macronutrient categories or large amounts of calories, or you're not able to participate in specific events with your family because of your diet. That's extreme, right? That's not what balanced eating looks like. Balanced eating means I can afford to eat Thanksgiving dinner because the rest of the time I'm getting adequate or above nutrition into my person. That is so important, Chris, and and it is tied to the flexibility piece. Um, And I I feel like we all have a story or one million stories like, (laughs) oh, yeah, I've done that diet or I learned what it's like to be restrained, constrained, you know, whatever limiting term you can think of. And, And it really doesn't need to be that way in order to achieve feeling better and being able to, you know, live hopefully without disease or minimal sort of, you know, any, any sort of medical condition. And so I think that can be hard waters to tread, right? Mm-hmm. Um, like, no, especially when we throw in the anecdotes and the, the influencers and the like. Show me a 45-year-old influencer who's doing that stuff and also has a family and a house and pets and any kind of interests. I want to see that person. I want to, I want a 24 hour feed of their day. There we go. That's what I want because <laughs> I don't want your highlight reel. I don't want the day where you're nailing I'm going to throw someone under the bus, you know, Jillian Michaels. Oh, <laughs> Liz, has, Liz has a lot of feelings about Jillian Michaels. Right. And you know, I think this is the the fitness world of the nineties yeah. and early two thousands. Right. It's that yeah. she was mm-hmm. absolutely the thing to strive for in that period of time. And I just think things have changed. I think, I think Jillian Michaels is like what a lot of women have in their heads and just constantly berating them and their choices and telling them that they need to suck it up and be better and be not such a loser. Mm. I mean, that was coaching for a long time, right? That's still, still she's being, still doing that to throw her yeah. completely you know, she's still doing that. <laughs> yeah. And I, I think it's, it's, you've seen this actually in the news recently. I can't remember what, oh gosh, what country it was, but I think it was a gymnast or was it an ice skater where she had pushed herself so hard because her coach was constantly berating her and it became this international issue. Um, and the coach was, was ice actually, skating, right? was it ice skating? You know, yeah. The Olympians. The yeah. yeah. And, you know, and in my experience in coaching these kinds of high level athletes as well, you, you do still see a lot of coaches coaching this way because that's how they were coached. Right. They're not doing it out of malice. They're not doing it because they think it's you know wrong. They're doing it because they think that this is the best way to get optimum performance out of somebody. And well, I think. But hmm. what about what about. So if, if we're talking figure skating or gymnastics, it's not just what's your optimum performance we can get out of you. It's much more also what can you look like and how thin can you be in, th- in the tight in the tight little outfits? I think it's actually it's very intertwined and it, it's mm-hmm. it's much more intertwined than you think, because the belief is that 
you have to look that way to perform a certain way, right? Not looking that way means you can't possibly perform that way. But we've seen we've seen that that's People not really true believe that. Yeah, like, yeah, yes, we have examples very, very that that's not true. Right, but it's very prevalent, you know. And I that's I think I, I talk about this a lot, and this kind of brings us right back around to endurance athletes and performance. And there's this really great book I read a really long time ago called Slow Fat Triathlete. And it's about this woman who really wanted to compete in triathlon, but felt really like she couldn't because she was heavier and she didn't have the optimum body fat percentage. And so for a long time, Mm -hmm. she didn't compete, even though once she started competing, she may not have been the fastest and she may not have always podiumed, but she was like loving doing it and really wanted to keep doing it and get better. And so instead of basing herself off of an aesthetic or off of perceptions about what the sport should look like, Um, she just based it off of her own performance and her own improvements, right? Because, you know, I think this is another topic we could talk about forever, but it's so preventative and prohibitive when there is a specific aesthetic that is tied to a specific sport. Yes. Okay. Are big, strong guys better at rugby? Yeah. Because you don't really want to be in the scrum and be a tiny guy. That's good. It's dangerous, right? (laughs) Same thing goes for other sports. Like there are specific body shapes that might be more conducive to higher performance in that sport. And you don't have control of that. Like, sorry, that's just an unfortunate reality. We don't have a lot of control over our fundamental physiology. But what we do have control over is our perception of our performance in that sport based off of Mm -hmm. those factors, right? So when we, when we talk about high level performance, we talk about like an aesthetic, especially for figure skaters. Like we look at the reason why figure skaters are supposed to be light is because men are throwing them around. Right? Well, only the pair, lighter only, you are. Only pairs though. Right. If you're a solo female figure skater, which that one was who we were, mm-hmm. we were talking about. Is there a reason why? I think it couldn't be more than 90 pounds. I think it's a holdover. And I think it also stems from the idea that women don't carry muscle or shouldn't carry muscle. Um, And the reality of that is that it it makes women less competitive because we don't fuel adequately and therefore we don't gain enough muscle and then we don't compete as well versus being a physiological hold up, hold back. Right. And just the, 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 what I do know of figure skating and you could say the same thing with ballet and most like most female sports where they're judged a lot on like their, their physical appearance, which is pretty much all, a lot of female sports. Um, you are seen, if you are more muscular, what I have noticed is that they, you're seen as not, um, not graceful. So if you oh, have yeah. more well, muscle, standards, right? yeah. And it's like, are they less graceful or is it just, they're holding more muscle. So you perceive them as less graceful or is it actually like, you know, it's, it's, um, it's just really tricky with those things like figure mm-hmm. skating and things like gymnastics and anything that's, you know, not what WNBA or, or, you know, but all of these sports have their own specific culture that has evolved over mm-hmm. a long period of time with standards and criteria that made sense when we knew less, right? When we we had anecdotal evidence or we had high performers, we just modeled the next generation of high performers off of the last generation of high performers, right? It's not, again, I don't think it's malice. I think it's it's just tradition almost, right? If, if that's the word to use here, it's just how things have been done. And I've come up against this in, in multiple Olympic sports where talking with coaches and asking about their process and, you know, what their training program looked like so I could support them with nutrition and, and that kind of thing. 
a lot of times the answers are like, well, this is just how this is done. I don't know why I'm programming this way. I don't know Mm -hmm. why I'm asking my athletes to hit these targets. And so when I started asking more of these questions, it started leading to some really good conversations with coaches about why this is the way it is and why they thought they worked that that particular protocol worked for them. And if they think it's working for their female athletes, for example, or if it's not like what kind of, what kind of performance are you getting out of this? And so I think there's a lot of work to be done in that area, which is, you know, why talking about something like women's endurance sports, I think is super important because I think, especially in endurance sports, the idea of an endurance athlete is very, very lean. Mm-hmm. When in reality, and I hope Dina's going to back me up here. I hope this is, you know, this is what I've learned anyway, is that the reality is that there's an optimum amount of body fat you should carry for an endurance event. And below that, it actually inhibits your performance, right? So mm-hmm. if you're super, super lean and you're running for a really long time, your body's hopefully burning fat but if you're not carrying any it can't burn that and so it's going to turn to something else and it's likely going to be muscle definitely I was just thinking of something too uh when we were talking about sports specific and some like some of the notions we have of the body shape that fits into that sport Mm -hmm. just thinking more broadly for uh you know aging women uh and I'm much older than you both so it's like (laughs) well what is it that we think we are going to look like, like as women in menopause, whether we're endurance athletes or not, doesn't matter, but there's this stereotype or stigma or whatever that, you know, we just stop doing sport once we're in our late forties or early fifties, because we're not strong anymore. And we're, you know, weak and all this stuff. And so I think this is huge. This, this movement that's been emerging here is being strong. And it doesn't mean you have to be bulked up or anything. It's just like, you know, functionally strong, being able then to carry that over into sport of choice or activity of choice and keep this population growing like participation wise in endurance sport or otherwise so that we are changing the whole paradigm of what it is to be an aging female in menopause or postmenopause. Yeah. And if you have questions about this stuff, like absolutely seek out somebody who has knowledge about it because there is some knowledge about it now. You know, I think maybe 20, 30 years ago, again, th- these, t- these topics were taboo still, right? And we've mm-hmm. seen such a yep. huge, amazing shift in, in women coming out and saying, hey, like I deserve to know how my physiology works and I deserve to find out if it's normal from other people and I deserve to to understand it and do my best with it, right? And we're not done at 45 or 50, right? This is a ridiculous. We're living longer than men. <laughs> we're outliving them. So we're clearly not done yet, right? Like <laughs> there's a lot right. to, there's a lot to do still. And I think this idea of strength for women is super amazing too. I remember being the only woman in the weight room in college. Like it was it it was really uncomfortable, you know, and, and I could tell a million and one stories about what it was like to be somebody who lifted reasonably heavy at the time and be female in the weight room. It's, it's been a journey. (laughs) It's been a journey, you know? So it's, it's so good to see so many younger women putting aside the, the smaller is better mentality and and getting really into strength. I just, it makes my, it makes my little soul so happy, you know, like, and, Definitely. And so nutrition, just to come back to that a little bit here is like, well, we, 
We don't necessarily need to be eating less or eating light. Uh, Of course, that all needs to be tailored to our activity and so forth, but fueling the body to support the strength that we desire or, you know, if it's more endurance focus that goes along with the strength piece, but even just health-wise, right, protecting bone, um, it's staying, you know, upright instead of hunched over as I sit here all I know. Yeah. <laughs> like just how much uh these things go together along with mindset and, and all of that as well. Yeah, and I think this is this is what's so great about this time in in nutrition and fitness and strength, right, is that women are beginning to have more of a voice and we are starting to take control of some of this stuff. I think the last hurdle really is this this component of like, yeah, okay, we want to be strong now, but we're not willing to eat adequately to gain the strength, right? Like (laughs) this is probably one of the most common things I deal with, with not just my athlete clients, but with my regular people clients too. And I I kind of hate that distinction. I hate having to be like athletes and regular people like (laughs) women, right? people who like to do things with their bodies at all are my clients. Right. So like this idea that like, I'm going to continuously eat less, but lift more. And that's going to make me stronger. I think this is the next big thing that needs to die. Right. (laughs) Like, Mm -hmm. Let's put that one out there and just never let it back in because you, it's at the end of the day, it's, it's physics, right? Like it's the laws of thermodynamics. Energy is not either gained nor lost. So if you're not putting it in, you can't use it. Exactly right. You know, so, sorry, soapbox moment for me. This is definitely a, a topic good. that's that was really close to my, you know, my heart <laughs> and my my career and everything I do, especially working with women, just oh, getting these getting these women to eat. So let's talk really quickly about like what, what does an adequate food intake look like? I know what I tell my clients, right? But this, I want them to hear it from somebody else working in nutrition who has much more medical background than someone like me as a nutrition coach. Like what is an adequate calorie intake for the average five foot four, 140 pound female? Mm, well, so Chris, do you do more calculation, like a quantitative uh, guideline is that typically what not you provide, typically, or? but people really ask for it very regularly, right? Because of the diet mentality, this is yeah. the number one thing people ask for, right? It's like, oh, but yeah, because I'm like, ooh, I'm not going to answer that. <laughs> I, I don't, I don't like the uh, quantitative answer. Like it's X mm. calories per pound, and then subtract whatever if you're looking. So I, I really look at quality and frequency of, of meals. I look at nutrition around exercise, maybe the eating window, if that is, you know, if, if we're not, if we are, uh, you know, needing maybe some of the behavioral changes there, I'll mm-hmm. look at eating window. So I'm, I'm just kind of dancing around the answer a little bit to carefully say, like, I don't want to give a, a number based on a height Right. Um, Why? We should we should tell Adina about our Noom experience. <laughs> oh, I, I meant. To Did you listen to the Noom episode? I, yeah, I didn't get to. Yeah, it's on my in my queue here. I, the reason I bring it up is because I think for some people, when you feel really lost, 
with what you should be eating, right? Because you'll hear all sorts of things all across the map. Like you should eat more, you should eat less, you should eat protein, you should only eat protein, you should never have carbs, you should always have carbs, you should be vegetarian. <laughs> it's like, it becomes this, this sea of confusion I find for a lot of clients and they just come in and they're like, just tell me what to yeah. eat. And so yeah. what we do, like through Precision Nutrition's program, right? We have a baseline. It's like, this is a foundation. We're going to try something close to this and see how you feel. And then we're going to assess, right? Did you feel extra full? Did you not feel very full? Were you hungry two hours after you ate? Were you hungry an hour after you ate? Did you not want food again for nine hours? Like, yeah. let's let's establish a foundation that we have a data set to go from, right? Like, first things first, you have to have a control group. So what are you doing now, right? And then what can we add to that? And is it adequate, right? Do you feel an energy slump? Do you have a headache at four o'clock? Like looking at some of these different markers for what adequate nutrition looks like, I think is is what people are looking for, right? So, you know, Liz and I are going to have a, a moment here about calorie counting, but I think the thing for, for decades has been calorie counting. And so people are very, very comfortable with the idea of 1200 calories or you know, I shouldn't exceed 2000 calories. And like, you you immediately have a response just like me of like, oh, <laughs> so yeah, talk I'm about that a little bit. Yeah. Well, I'm, I'm with you. I'm, I'm looking at quality. Of course I set a foundation and I'm, I rarely will convey that in numbers, hmm. you know, Oftentimes, I'm looking at things that you just mentioned. So it's all the touchy-feely. How hungry are you when you wake up? What do you feel like energy-wise? Um, are you feeling cravings, uh, fatigue? You know, you can run down the list, but it's I, I try not to ask like yes or no, right? It's it's more collecting. You know, go go journal for a few days and just write what it is you feel. And mm. I almost, I almost don't even need to know what you're eating specifically. It's like, how are you feeling with how you're fueling? Of course, the, the food, you know, comes into the picture here. Mm. And um, journal without judgment, I want to put out there, right? Definitely, definitely. Mm -hmm. And so, I mean, on my side, and it's not like there's secrets here, because it's aligned with what you do too, Chris, it's, it's then ensuring like, um, you know, we can work within an energy range, but that we're not robots, we're not living and, you know, moving the same way every day. So this calorie goal is going to be so fluid and dynamic. I don't like to, to put those targets on anyone and instead look at the timing and the type, but translate it to what it, like, can you eat more of you know, said protein or more carbohydrate and protein around your training. And, you know, it looks like you're starting your day a little light. Can we gradually, you know, boost or change, you know, how you're, how you start every single day instead of it's this meal plan and you follow it for the same, you know, the same way every day. Um, Cause that, that's, we're not robots, right? So <laughs> Uh, oftentimes then that Absolutely. will carry to looking at micronutrients because that's really important, especially as we're getting into our forties and, mm. and beyond is making sure that we're not missing out. So there's such a focus on macros, which I appreciate, but we often forget about all of these supportive micronutrients and the interplay of, of genes and activity and aging and hormonal shifts and so forth. So 
there, yeah, there's a lot of layers there that we can tackle without counting and, and measuring food. I think I just want to put out there as well for people listening, like I did not prep Dina in any way on any of these topics. Okay. Like if what she's saying sounds a lot like what we're talking about a lot of the time, it's because this is really, you know, where the the truth of the science of nutrition intersects with the experience of being a human being. Right. And I think the tendency often is like, I want a solution. I have a problem. I want a solution now. Tell me exactly what it is that's going to solve my problem. And unfortunately, when it comes to human physiology and the lived experience of people, it's never a black and white answer. There is no one size fits all. It's just not something we can say, hands down, this is the right diet for everyone. Right. And I, and I, I feel like it's a theme that runs through this, this podcast regularly, right? It's, the, the absolute truth of it is you have to learn your own body. And as it stands right now, you are still the greatest expert on you that exists. And so it may feel like hard work and it may not be something you want to tackle all at once, but doing that work on yourself and figuring out how your physiology responds, how your body responds, how your emotional state responds to these different things is the answer. It is the answer. <laughs> I feel like I've never quite come out and said it that way before, but that is the answer. It's you have to do this work if you want the results. And every athlete I know that's been extremely successful has done this work. I'm just going to echo what you said because I couldn't have <laughs> said it any better. <laughs> oh, thanks. I so think this, is, this has been a great conversation and I'm looking forward to having you back on because I think there are a couple of very specific topics we would like to discuss. Um, we didn't quite get to PCOS today or some of the other, you know, big lifestyle con like disease questions and conversations. So I think it would be great to have you back on to talk about that again. Um, but if you just had one or two things like takeaways from today or really important things you wanted to leave people with, what would it be? So I think Chris and Liz, Thank you again for having me on. I've been uh, honored to be with you for this time. But I think one thing that comes out over and over, and it, it ties to what you just ended with, which is trying to listen to what the, your body is trying to tell you, um, how you do that. I think we have so many pre preconceived notions of what that even means, right? And so if we can just be free from what, the app says or what, you know, the influencer says or social media, you know, stream is telling you, um, but just stepping back and really trying to get in touch with what it is you're, you're experiencing day to day. And it's not okay to be suffering. So if you have something that you feel is like not a major complaint, but it's enough to make your life not feel great or your two hours of the morning, not great. I think that is worth, like you are worth it. So trying to um, work with someone who can help you, whoever that person is, is fantastic um, to just like you're worth it and pursuing that, uh, you know, line of therapy or treatment or solution. Um, so I think just listening and really taking the time to learn about yourself and try some things, whether that is nutrition or training or some other therapy or, you know, healing process. We all need that and are worth it. Absolutely. Well said. What do you think, Liz? Yeah. What are your takeaways? Oh, it's just, 
yeah, pleasure to have you on, Dina. And um, I felt like we just kind of got back to that vein that we've been working in and and um, getting just you can't you can't say this information enough because we're so inundated with the opposite all the time. And um, it's you, we need to rehear this over and over in many different ways over and over and over. Um, so it's, it's just really good, really reinforcing. And I'm really glad um, we got to talk about it today. Absolutely. So if somebody wanted to work with you, Dina, how would they go about doing that? Oh, thank you, Chris. Uh, my website is probably the best place to start, which is nutritionmechanic.com. So you can find my contact info over there and yeah, check out the services that we offer. Awesome. Do you have an Instagram account or a TikTok account or? I'm not on TikTok, but uh, Instagram, you know, I'm a, I'm a little bit come and go with that lately. Just there's a lot of of noise there. Um, So sometimes I feel like, am I adding to the noise or trying to be helpful here? But nutrition mechanics, my handle over on Instagram and uh yeah that is that spelled yeah. right on the i'm yes. i'm not good at spelling <laughs> that looks right that's right you got yeah. it okay i don't yeah. have to spell mechanic often in my thank life. you well this has been awesome i've really enjoyed talking with you and i can't wait to see you again lifting big heavy things at the gym oh, so yeah. <laughs> Thank you so much. You both are a delight. Thanks for all you're doing as well. Thank you for for being on. All right. Have a great night. Thank you.